You are listening to Case in Point, a podcast from the team at Case, where we dive deep into some of the more challenging issues facing K-12 education. Find more episodes of Case in Point and our other podcasts online at www.co-case.org forward slash podcasts. Thanks for listening. Well, good morning, and welcome back to our session. We are excited to get started this morning with our esteemed panel, and we know you're going to enjoy the sessions and the questions and the discussions that go around it. As we begin this morning, I want to just bring your attention to a couple of things. We want this session to not be about necessarily the panels up here, although they're experts in their fields, but we want this to be an interactive session. So you'll see two mics in the middle of the room. You are welcome to approach those mics and ask questions throughout, um, whenever you see appropriate. If you're a little more shy, don't want to go to the mics, in a few minutes there will be an email address that pops up on the screens. You can email those questions in and we'll read those out loud to the panel as well. So for those I haven't had the privilege of meeting, my name is Patrick Shoemaker, and I am currently the president of CAESP and the president-elect of CASE, and I'm thrilled to be here today with this panel. So we're talking about the burden of the principalship. Um, And one thing that's gonna be new this year is that we are taping this session for a live case case podcast, Case in Point. We're thrilled to be the first to get to run one of these live sessions. Not sure if we're thrilled, but we're eager anyway. Um, Case in Point takes a deeper dive and tackles some of the harder issues we all face in K-12 education. For our podcast listeners, know that today you'll be hearing voices from our esteemed panelists as well as some questions from the audience. Speaking of which, um, audience, I've already told you how you can ask those questions. For the 2021 school year, it was unlike any we've ever known and we hope to never to repeat again. As leaders, we were asked to do more than ever before and plan for a school year with ever-changing rules and regulations. And buckle up, folks, it looks like it may be happening to us again. But we all came through it with flying colors and a positive attitude, but at times it did take a toll. Today we'll be talking not only about the equity issues that Ken so eloquently spoke about earlier, but also what principals can do for their own self-care. And I can't think of a more appropriate topic So we all met Ken this morning, down on the end, Ken Williams, we're thrilled to have him back. Next to him is Mitch Forsberg, past case president and a principal in Eagle County. Then we have Chris Hinger, middle level principal in Archuleta County. And finally, Maura Coogan, incoming CASSP president and principal in Denver Public Schools. So welcome to our panelists. So we'll get started. We just heard a great keynote presentation from Ken. Ken, thank you again for your excellent keynote and what a great way to kick off a conversation. And for our panelists today, let's talk about the main thing you each took away from our keynote. And Mitch, we can start on the end with you. No, we're gonna start with Ken. Yes, sir. All right. Quick word, so, so just it makes me even sadder about not being able to stay here later and lets me know I'm with good people. Five different people stopped me and let me know that superintendents was spelled wrong on a slide. Yeah, so, so that, that sounds really minor to you, but I'm gonna be out of here in an hour, and it would have been easy to just let it slip, you know, and not deal with the possibility of me giving you a side eye, but I knew each one of those people gave me that feedback like a coach because they wanted me to be better. And I felt that every person that stopped me 
I've corrected the slide. Okay. No. Just a reaction from this morning? Yeah. What was your big takeaway? No, I think the, um, like, I'm, I'm cognizant that I'm within arm's reach of Ken, so I'm just, uh, all right, man. Um, no, what, I, what I, I think I appreciated most is, is just let's avoid the platitudes of the work and let's get to it. Let's roll up our sleeves and make it happen. Um, uh, I have the good fortune of serving a Title I school. I have the good fortune of working with kids that we ultimately can make a difference for. And I, and I think those comments rang true for me and for all of us who serve you know, an at-risk population. And so equity is education for all. And I, I like that and appreciated that. So in preparing for this, my wife is my confidant. She's also a teacher, and I shared with her the title, The Burden of the Principalship, and Self-Care, and a couple of questions. And she goes, that's just going to be a whining session, huh? <laughs> Spoken like a true teacher, like, you guys are just going to go up there and whine. I'm like, no, we're not. But I didn't really know what we were talking about or what uh, Ken was going to share about. And what inspired me um, was the role of the principal and how central all of these leaders are to that. And cases always inspired me. And equity is absolutely a topic that is one that we need to address and continue to address. And uh, I, I loved um, You Must Decide. I don't, I don't know that I'll ever forget that in my mind. And then we also must coach. And uh, being a, having the... the uh, a same experience of working with Rick and Becky DeFore a, a number of years ago. Um, it brought up a lot of memories to me on what do I need to do as a principal to really set the stage to inspire, um, to empower people, and to create that vision for our school and in a very pragmatic way. And you guys know how important that is this time of year and how we need to drum up that and, and carry that forward and, and engage with our people to carry that forward. And so thank you for the inspiration. Good morning. Um, I had two really big takeaways from this morning, um, and I am so going to use Cosmequity um, for the rest of this year because um, one of the things I, I teach or I lead, but I also believe as principals we're teachers, but I lead in a building that's 99.5% students of color um, and 95% free and reduced lunch and in an area in a region of our district that is primarily students of color. And one of the things is that we as leaders have been really pushing back against the idea of performative equity. And I really loved that you talked about that idea of ruthless equity and your fourth pillar about policies. And I, I tried to think about like, what is the role of the principal with that? And it's not just doing what we need to do in our building, but we all as leaders in our district and voices in our district also have that ability to push back against those policies that maintain white supremacy culture in our district because we are the voice of the ground. We are the voice of what happens in schools. And so I really took away the fact that like, not only do I need to be ruthless in my building, um, although I'm a really nice person, so it's hard to say I'm gonna be ruthless. Like I can say non, like non-negotiables. Um, but uh, but I, I think that it's also us being ruthless in pushing up against policies and here at Case, helping to have a, the principal voice on advocacy issues that, that maintain that white supremacy culture at, this, at you know, the district and state levels of policies that we have. So I really took that away. 
Thank you. And again, if you have follow-up questions for anyone or want to hear from Ken anymore, you've got the email address now posted up there, or you can just head to one of the mics. Pat, can I say one thing that I didn't like? Sure, Mitch. Other than superintendent spelled wrong, which I didn't catch, actually. Um, no, I, um, I didn't like the discomfort you caused me. And uh, I didn't like that because all of us right now are here at Case and we want to do the work and we want to be inspired. But you made clear that that's not enough. So thanks. And let's, uh, let's build on that a little bit. Ken, can you talk us just about, you, you talked about keeping the main thing the main thing and getting the other distractions out of the way. And I think we can all come up with key points, but whether it's our supervisors or our community, what advice do you have for principals of just sticking to that and holding to your guns? That was for you. I'm sorry, I'm still reflecting. I'm still, like, wow, you hit me. Read the last part of that one more time. Um, when you try to keep the main thing the main thing, and we all get hit by distractions, whether it's from central office or our parents or the kids or the teachers, what advice do you have to principals who do this tough work each and every day to just stick to that? Yeah, so uh, actually I actually have a video about just that. And I talk about how a thousand things come at you with white hot intensity, they all look like top priority. And listen, Rick didn't care what you called it. I called it learning communities. And what it did for me is it quieted the noise and allowed the priorities to emerge. It didn't stop the stuff coming at me, but one thing it did do was it helped me prioritize. I had to learn what to give my A effort and what to give my B and sometimes C effort to. My A effort went into making sure all my teachers were in effective teams and they were doing the right work within team. Uh, my A effort went into making sure we identified essential learning targets and we were learning this stuff authentically. My A effort went into making sure that we transitioned from looking at data to figure out who got it, who didn't. We had to get past the data uh, uh, validating what we already thought, right? By November, as a teacher, you know who's struggling, right? But if, if you don't understand equity work, then when you get the assessment, you're like, see, man, it just validates what we thought. No, no, it, it's supposed to show you where they're struggling and what we can do about it. And in my district, uh, teacher observations and evaluations, I kind of give my C effort because what I found over time was teachers gave each other better feedback. They grew more from grappling with questions in the collaborative culture than me coming by and trying to figure out how kindergartners learn to read. It's just the comments, I just, they just got tired of, you are very, very, very effective in your class. And you are a value to the staff. So, th so that, that's what it did, it, 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 it highlighted the priorities. And PLC is not a, you know, equitable practice, PLC practice, it's not an initiative, it's nothing that's extra, it's what we do. And then everything else gets built around that. If you go to my Twitter page, like that's the, pin video, how to fit PLCs in. So that's what it did for me. It, it highlighted the priorities, and then it taught me what gets my A effort and what gets my C effort. And I'll <clears throat> flip it to our panelists if they want to add to that or talk about when you identify your A effort items like he just mentioned, who are you sending off your B and C level items to, and how do you let go of that? when we're all tend to be perfectionists. 
You want me to answer that or the panelists? I'll take it. I'll let anybody answer that who wants to. It's mind board of the illegal. Yeah. Me? Okay. So. <laughs> so. I did some passing off when I could. Um, I was never uh, belligerent non-compliant, but sometimes I flirt with deadlines, you know? Just look up like when you were kids, you know, your mom and dad say something, you kind of know when they really mean it and when they're just saying it just to say it. So I learned what stuff I can get away with. And a couple of years, we had a really good assistant soup who worked with me. And I tried to beat back things off our plate because we were the worst performing school in the district. And as a result, they were hammering us with all sorts of initiatives, all these golden handcuffs. Here's the cash, we gotta do the skip the program. Here's the cash, but you, and what I think that is, low key, I think that's a way for them to throw a bunch of activity and stuff at us that we could never get great at because it's too, too much to do at one time. And then at the end of the year, they'll say, look at all they had, they had PBIS, they had open court. And so I had a really good soup who, when I could beat stuff back, I, could, I would beat it back. The C effort stuff, I just did myself. I just did a crap job at it. <laughs> just, just enough evaluation comments to hand stuff in. You know? It's, I'm, it's terrible. I, I, I know, I'm sure there's some systems, but listen, by and large, teachers don't come out of post-ops comment conferences like, oh my God, I'm so grateful for that critical feedback you gave me that you saw when you were in my classroom once a year uh, doing this. They get more from looking across the table at another colleague who with them has identified essential learning targets. They've agreed on what mastery looks like, but they have two different styles. And then they draft off each other's styles. I couldn't, even beating stuff back, the, you know, the observation <coughs> schedule still ate up a lot of my time. But, you know, I just wish my teachers did what I did when I was a young teacher. First, I tried to set kids up and tell them, just like, be really good, be good, and be good, and behave, and they always screw that up. So what I learned to do is this. I tell the kids, when Miss Silvio comes in, when I ask a question, if you know the answer, raise your right hand. If you don't know the answer, raise your left hand. I have the greatest, like, engagement comments of a teacher. In America, like I hold the record, like Katie Ledecky, like that's who I am. Thank you. It's really hard to follow somebody that that's, is that funny. Because I try to be funny and now I'm just going to feel like I'm a really bad stand-up comic, so I'm not going to try to be funny. Um, one of the things that I do is I, I think back to when I was a first-year teacher and I was dragging home, you know that box, I was a language arts teacher, and I was dragging home the daily startups and writing comments on every one of the kids' daily five-minute warm-up journals. And I'm sure you can imagine how far behind I got in my grading and commenting that I was dragging home that like, like suitcase thing that rolls on wheels, and then five months later handing back things to kids that they were like, I don't even remember why I wrote this paragraph. And I had a really amazing coach that said to me, is it gonna push them forward? Are they gonna do anything with that feedback? And that's actually how I approach a lot of those things that come on our plates, is I ask myself, is it gonna push anything in my school forward? Or is it going to, is anybody gonna do anything with this information or feedback? And I too, and I'm never gonna show this to my boss, 
flirt with the deadlines on those second ones. Um, because the fact is, is that you need to spend your time on the stuff that's gonna push forward the work that you need to do. So I, if, if you're dragging stuff home in five bags, you probably have too much on your plate. Thank you. Well, we have our first question emailed in. <clears throat> so how do you deal with discomfort as a leader? How do we lead uncomfortable conversations when we ourselves are, when we're uncomfortable ourselves? I liked um, Ken's reference to Brene Brown and, and leading with vulnerability. My woman yeah, I, I'm, hands off. Um, <laughs> but I also, I also like what you said of, of, of let's get into this work together, right? Let's mess this up together. And, and just by by being vulnerable leaders and by showing that, you know, this is our true north, all means all, uh, equity means high expectations for every kid. And if that's your true north and you're leading with that, then it makes those conversations easier, especially if you're willing to get dirty al along with it. One of the things you mentioned was uh, locally and in context. Keep things local and in, in your context. and. In Archula School District, we have um, a growing population of Native American students coming up from right along the New Mexico border and joining our school. And right now, three buses driving three, uh, 45 minutes to pick up these kids and bring them. And that's a new context for us. And so if you stay in the same context, you're not going to solve the problem. And so having those uncomfortable conversations and growing, um, we've had to really dive into that work and, and admit, like you said, I don't know. But uh, let's let's find somebody that does. Let's and and we have some teachers that have taught in the, in that in the in the on the Hickory Apache, and we made them leaders. And so I'm a big fan of not just being collaborators, but make your teachers leaders because some of them do have answers to these questions, and they're bright bright people that are ready to lead. Um, we need more of that in education as teacher leaders stepping up and and helping us solve tough problems. That's a that's a great segue. I was listening to. Uh... One of my colleagues, Brian Butler, who is just fantastic, you can follow him on Twitter, uh, sent me a video clip of Yvette Jackson, who's a contributing author. She wrote The Pedagogy of Confidence, which is a fantastic book. And one thing she really emphasized in this quick video was, we, we gotta start with what makes us alike first. It's not sexy, it's not gonna get your clicks, right? It's not hot, it's not gonna trend. But that's where people get a sense of belonging. When we, Focus on what makes us similar, what makes us alike. So that it's such a great segue because I think about those kids. Like I would just based on that, I would be consumed with how do we intentionally make them feel a part of this school. And so one thing she talks about is we got to stop talking, we got to start calling kids subgroups. And even she harps on the word minority. Like minority is less than. Like who wants, who's going to feel apart when you are already told you're not part of the major group, you are in fact less than the major group. How do you ever feel a sense of belonging? Uh, you know, I'm from the hood, but my first principalship was in a school. The lady was gonna place me, she was a black woman too, I'm thinking, because we got all sorts of everything in this district. I said, you gonna put me in the hood with my cousins. She said, you going to Damascus, Maryland. I said, Damascus? Small town, dry town, working class, Nothing but white folks, never had, never seen a school administrator of color in their life. All my hood credibility, gone. <laughs> I got there, they looked at me like, what you doing here? I said, I don't know what I'm doing here. I don't know what I'm doing here. What you doing here? I don't, it's just, 
But within two days, because it's how I roll, you step over the threshold of Damascus, you mine, and that's it. Like we bleed Damascus green, and that was it. And I defend the rights of those kids who look nothing like me as passionately as I do the kids I had in Atlanta who almost all look like me because we found that sense of belonging. Damascus brings it together. I had to get out in the community and learn their mores and their traditions and what was important to them. And they had to learn about me, but it was all in the service of, we are Damascus. Like we're gonna have that sense of belonging. And so let's look for what brings us together first, really dig into that, and then, and then eventually get to what makes us different, and that's the flavor, right? That, that's, that's the flavor to the sauce. And the other thing I would suggest in terms of having those tough conversations is context. Like you said, brother, find a policy on staff. Yesterday I'm, I'm working, I don't know where I was yesterday, but I was working yesterday. And we talked about ability groups. And I said, you, it's hard to talk about all this anti-racist stuff. And, you know, can you be an anti-racist and have ability groups still, right, you know, in your school? That's an issue. Kids are being taught below grade level all year long. I don't care how far behind they are. And she ended up by saying, I'm going to give it a shot. You know, me and my team are going to give it a shot. So I, I say, instead of saying we need to talk about race, let's find a policy that needs to be changed, either change it and talk about why, or put it on the table and say, we need to change this and let's talk about why. And let those issues grow authentically. They won't be, they may not be any less awkward, but at least they'll have context. Does that make sense? Well, let me just read this one aloud. Why does Ken choose to wear a cowboy hat? It looks sharp. I love a great cowboy hat, but I know it doesn't show belonging everywhere. It doesn't show up. It show doesn't belong. show belonging everywhere. Oh, well, again, well, I wear, I love hats. I, I've always loved hats. I think, uh, well, Indiana Jones, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, where I had one of those hats in high school. That was kind of weird like that. I like hats. I wear cowboys hats for the most part, and I wear fedoras because I love old classic movies. And so, and, and so over time, it's become part of my branding. I showed up to an event without it, and someone came up and she was almost offended. I almost didn't recognize you. I was like, well, what? And so it's, it's become part of my brand. I love hats. In terms of belonging, again, if we focus on what brings us together, that's what I did first, like we're all equity warriors, we're about learning for all for kids, we're about setting our teachers up and our schools up with the tools and resources to, to lean into their collective expertise, that's what brings us together, right? That's what makes us alike. And then the hat and the spats and the pocket watch adds flavor, baby. That's the flavor. And you got your own flavor. It's a great question. All right. Obviously, it isn't a secret that last year has been exceptionally difficult. And to our panelists, did this year or this past year change your perspective on equity? And what are you doing to start this new year? So much. Um, <laughs> I, I think when you were talking about policies and procedures, that this year with the, the twin pandemics of what we've uncovered um, in our country. Uh, we haven't uncovered it. As Will Smith said, it's just being videotaped now. Um, but the pandemic that so many of our students are facing and our teachers and our leaders 
are facing, and then the pandemic of COVID, which in and of itself also disproportionately affected groups of people within this country. Um, it really caused me to ask the question about how much as a leader I was buying into policies and procedures that perpetuated white supremacy culture. And in fact, actually the use of the word white supremacy culture, because at the beginning of two years ago, I would have said it's equity work. Um, but in this past two years have had the opportunity and particularly during the pandemic, there's a lot more time at home. So I did a lot more reading um, and a lot more watching of things and really began to, to be able to call out as a, as a white leader that I need to call it out as what it is and look at the history of our choice enrollments, look at the history of our testing, look at how we use um, scores and how that has promoted things that have historically been used to, to marginalize um, some of our communities. And what I learned during the pandemic is I need to call that out and it can't be hidden. Um, going back to that first question of like an uncomfortable conversation it is uncomfortable to say those words sometimes. It's uncomfortable to call it out. It's uncomfortable to tell a teacher, you may not think you are, you may think you're doing this great work, but you're kind of coming in with a white savior complex. Those are really uncomfortable conversations, um, but I learned to be uncomfortable. And the nice thing is, is it was over Zoom, so I could also like, you know, then turn off my camera and be like. <laughs> but um, that was the one upside of Zoom. But I think that's what I really learned in the pandemic is it's okay to be uncomfortable and we have an obligation to come out and heal folks. Um, the trauma has been disproportionate in some of our communities and we have an obligation to come out and really work to heal our communities. And it, it changed my work. I'm not worrying about test scores. I really, our last two years of data, as my former superintendent said, is garbage data. Half my kids didn't come in and take access. The other half, like, a third of kids came to, to take CMAS, so I'm not gonna take those scores seriously. But I do know what my teachers know. I do know every one of them who called their kids at home. I do know every one of them who Google, who got Google Voice so they could text students. I know that they know which kids lost a parent. They know which kids were in danger in the community. And I'm learning to trust that data way more than I'm gonna trust data on a test. And I'm going to be an advocate for that. The pandemic highlighted inequity like never before. And in a rural setting uh, in southwest Colorado, um, even going online was highlighted even more so. Because uh, many places don't have cell reception, right? Many places don't have internet. And so how do those students get educated when we go virtual, right? Um, how many of those kids don't have that? So it, it, I think education is go, has this past year and will go through an evolution, but one that is much faster. Um, I know in Archuleta School District, uh, we moved from Chromebooks that were in chargers in the cart to now giving every kid equitable access to uh, have a tool to learn at home and now we've got to, we've still got to challenge ourselves to make sure they have internet connection at home. Because just because you hand them a Chromebook doesn't mean that they have internet connection. So we realize the, the inequities more so because the highlight of the pandemic made it so. And now we have the responsibility 
to um, wrestle with and fund um, that equity um, from food uh, to emotional support. Um, there are so many things that we are pivoting to provide more of following the pandemic. And in some ways, it's helped us identify where there's an equity and, and quickly address it. Um, so I guess uh, there's a, a bright side of, of a dark, dark story there. So I, I, and I don't purport this, like there's some areas where I believe I'm, you know, I'm an expert and I've got, this is more, I'm not putting this out there as this is the way to think or do, I'm just telling you, I'm a mother's child. And so I probably fall somewhere in the middle of what our good sister was talking about in terms of, um, you know, inequities and testing and things like that. And I know it's my upbringing. Uh, so the savior thing scares me. That it scares me, and I, I think there's responsibility on all sides. I think when you send the message that white teachers can't teach kids of color, you set them up to be charity workers, which makes you saviors. And you know what happens when you're a savior? Your heart bleeds. When your heart bleeds, you pity. And you know, you know what you pity? You want to avoid pain. So even though you need to know three by three multiplication by the end of the year, I know your background. I'm feeling pity for you with love in my heart. We're going to do one by one because I want you to feel successful, right? As opposed to an advocate. An advocate, opposite mindset. I know she comes from a challenging background. I know she's behind. I also know she needs to know three by three. So it's like, look, uh, I know you don't get a lot of support at home, so we're gonna get you get started on homework at school because you need to know three by three by the end of the year. I know you're working below grade level. So that's the difference between advocacy and charity. I call it death by sweet and low. I do a whole workshop on that, death by sweet and low. Um, that scares me. So I, t I know exactly what you're saying about the testing. I know that standardized testing is, is, is not fair. I get it. I also don't have the wiring. Like I'm going to send you money. Like when you put out there, I'm going on the hill with a group of people and we're going to fight this. I'm going to send you some money, but I'm not going to join you. I, I, that's, that's, that's too big. I, that's too big. I'm going to, I'm the guy at the school trying to keep things running while you get the big systemic stuff changed because we need people like her. So what I'm going to do at the school is this. I come from a neighborhood where nobody knows about squash as a sport. But if, if you give me a heads up that squash is on that standardized test, damn if I'm not going to make, have, make sure my kids are ready to respond to squash because while I understand the spirit of what you're saying about dismissing that data, the world doesn't dismiss it yet and we got to step out there and we're judged by it. And so I came up in a family where it's like, look, stuff's unfair, people are gonna judge you for the wrong reasons sometimes, that's the way it is, get after it. And if you ask my kids what, the, what daddy's motto is, wake up every day like the government's gonna do nothing for you and get after it every day. Stay out of debt, don't have babies before you don't want to, and you'll be able to make choices. Wake up every day like the government's doing nothing for you. And if they do something for you, it's a bonus. But don't you dare look, because victimhood scares me more than anything else. I have enough driving while black stories to fill up the rest of this time. I've been victimized, but I'm not a victim. I don't wear the cloak of victim. I won't wear it. It's too heavy. I don't walk around like everybody's got to, out to get me. I give everyone the benefit of the doubt. I'm very pragmatic. I'm not political either. I'm pragmatic. I don't have time. I, it's, I don't have that kind of patience. So I'm going to be at the school trying to figure things out. Even if it's unfair in the short run, 
And that's a message we had to send our staff. It was like, look, they need to perform on these tests. While our good sister and a group of folks are gonna go try to like, dismantle some of that stuff. But today, they're sitting for that standardized test. Because what scares me is, what scares me more than anything else is projecting any quote unquote group of kids. I know exactly what you're thinking, but out there, they're gonna be seen as broken. They're gonna hear everything you said about unfair questions and all those things, and, and you're right, and we need to change them. And I should probably reflect and like get my butt on a bus and go to change them, but I know I'm not that guy. But I'm telling you, I would hammer my staff like, we gotta have both. We gotta have both. We're gonna get to know them on a social emotional and don't take the L off a learning level. Like, and they gotta perform. They gotta perform. We gotta figure it out. We gotta figure it out. You know, because if everyone were like you, I would, I'd be cool with that, but I don't, I just know when people look at those numbers, man, it's just, they're gonna judge and it, and it scares me. And, and I'm 100% with you. Um, and I'm a huge, like, I'm, I, I love PLCs, like, and the four questions. We, we actually are. I think, we, I think we're, we're more like um, we, the things that we have in common. Um, but, I, you know, I think, I think that's, that's it. What I think we've come to in some, of our place, in some of our schools is where you were talking about the data becomes nameless students, and we have subgroups, and we have colors, and we have charts. And I think what, what, I, what I think we do is we know that those tests are out there, but here's what's funny. If we give students grade level instruction, and it's exactly what you said, if we give students grade level instruction, if we give them rigor and then we tell them that we, they can do it and that their worth is not tied to those tests, it's amazing that actually the scores tend to go up. And if the scores still don't go up, you have a body of evidence to talk about the things that your babies do do. Um, my, for example, I have a newcomer program, meaning our students come from, from places where they have not had continuous schooling. Guess what? I know it's going to shock you. After their first year, they're not going to, in 10th grade, become proficient on PSAT. I know, I think I just blew your mind. Um, but we just did a project where they told their stories and worked with a film company to tell their stories. And I, there's now a body of evidence of what you can do. So that test doesn't define you, but that rigor and that advocacy and what you can do and who you are is embedded then in who they, in who they are as people. And they know that they can go out and conquer the world. And, and so I'm with you. The, the, we have to teach our students that nobody's going to do anything for them and that they are their own, their own best champions. But part of the way that we do that is we, we trust our teachers to know how to help them self-advocate. So I'm, I'm with you. Yep. And the last, so the last thing I'll say about it, and I know we got another question, is I even stop looking at the kids because sometimes we look at the kids and say it's not the kids and the test. Like the kids, everything's about the adults to me. Everything, everything. I work with you, that's all we're going to talk about is a talent and expertise in the room. And so we put pressure on ourselves. Like if our kids are gonna perform, it's gonna be because what we do and who we are and how we work. I don't need you to learn rap music for kids of color. I need you to treat them like they're gifted. Because something happens there. And I got teachers, I got, I got three teachers in my life. One would stand out in our Christmas picture and one would blend right in. And one, you know, the, the one who would stand out is my sister Mary Claire, and she's taught 50 years. She's still living. When I go to New York, I'm going to New York tomorrow. I will, I will catch up. We have lunch. 
I tell her stories. She doesn't remember any of them. She's like, what did I do? I was like, you were amazing. She made me feel like a, a million bucks and didn't look like me. And so my, my biggest fear is that I don't want kids to be cast as victims. And if they can't do like other kids can do, they're going to be cast as victims. And in my mind, them doing or not doing is not about the kid. It's about you. It's about us. How do we organize? Do we max out? Are we asking the right questions? Do we max out the time in collaborative teams? Are we leveraging data to lean into each other's collective expertise, or are we just figuring out who got it and who didn't? Are we reserving gifted programs for the top 10%? All those things. So I put the pressure on us, because if, if you keep rolling out kids who aren't performing, I, with all the unfair testing, they're gonna be seen as broken and less than. And that's the stuff that, that's what this whole pandemic and COVID has brought out to me. Like, I don't want equity to get lost, but people you know, equate equity with diversity. And it's just all these just thrown around terms, like they're all equal. And so that's why I'm out here just, you know, banging the drum relentlessly about what equity is and what it isn't and what it looks like in practice. Because if you identify what every student should know and be able to do in every learning endeavor, and you become consumed with ensuring every student master those things. And those learning outcomes are in line somewhat with, when I coach on essential learning outcomes, they meet four criteria. What must every student know and be able to do to master, to, to show mastery at the next grade level, the next course, the high stakes assessment when apl ap applicable, and life beyond the K-12 system. All four of those factors, we don't dismiss testing. Don't dismiss it, it's part of it, it can't be all of it. But it's not gone yet, so it's gotta be a part of it. Otherwise, they will be cast as victims. And that's the worst, I'd rather deal with racism than victimhood. Victimhood is the worst, it's, it's crippling. It's cr racism I can get my arms around, victimhood is crippling. It doesn't matter who it is. I think a shift that this morning is causing me to have right here in front of all of you um, is everything you know Ken just talked about didn't mention culture didn't mention diversity didn't mention what my head thinks or thought when I hear or read equity or critical race theory or whatever else I mean what I'm feeling um, as 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 we're here together is equity is high expectations for all kids and then as leaders doing what we can to ensure everybody on our campus helps meet that that's exactly what equity is that, 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 that's exactly what equity is if you decide if your teachers come together right and they answer the right questions and they decide every third grader is supposed to walk out knowing how to create this plastic bottle and the plastic bottle's got seven steps and you've deemed this essential you talk with fourth grade teachers, and fourth grade teachers said, yeah, we need them to come to fourth grade knowing how to make these bottles. And it's gonna you know, help them further on. Once you deem this essential, then everything else is about growing every student to it. There is no can they or can't they. Every student's background becomes context. Equity cannot exist without an essential outcome. Cannot, it does not exist. I do work I did some work yesterday and I showed those images you see on the web, equality versus equity, or the kids are like trying to watch the game. 
And one of the, so most people, you know, they, you see what, what's intended, which is the difference between equality and equity. But I focus on the equity side, and in each one, we do one with uh, kids watching a game with an unobstructed view, kids picking the fruit, and kids riding a bike. And I said, go back and look. Every one of those images has an essential outcome. We want kids to ride some form of a bicycle. We want kids to be able to pick the fruit. We want kids to see the game with the unobstructed view. You must have an essential outcome. If you don't have essential outcomes identified in every course and every content area, you cannot have equity at your school. It does not exist because that's what equity is. This is essential. Therefore, we must do, we must organize and marshal all resources to grow every student to this and their background provides context, not an excuse. That's what equity is in practice. That's what it is. You gotta have an essential outcome. I knocked the ambiguity out of everything. So there's no, not feelings and my truth. My truth. <laughs> I'm gonna put the mic down. I love how you make it that easy and that hard at the same time. All means all and it's essential outcomes. It's amazing you have a gift. And we have a gentleman who's been waiting patiently, so go ahead with your question. So I have a question for Ken, although I would love to hear anybody that has a thought on it. Um, it's a very specific question. I'm going to put you on the spot, but I think you can answer it. But I want to give you context. I have a belief that maybe I need to change my paradigm on this, but I have a belief coming from my experience, not everybody's experience here. My experience is living in vehicles and RVs and tents and apartments and some nice houses sometimes, some houses without front doors. We pulled a piece of plywood over. Um, we didn't have food all the time. A lot of love in my home, but there was also a lot of drugs, alcohol, violence, jail time, all that kind of stuff. And I hear us talking, my colleagues talking about the pandemic and its effect on the kids that were like me growing up, regardless of their color, that, that poverty background. And I'm not sure that, I'll make a statement, but I can change my mind if, if, if anybody wants to change it. Um, I'll consider that. I'm not sure the pandemic, if I was still in that situation, like it, it wouldn't have affected me. I did. I didn't have internet to begin with. I didn't have food to begin with. The pandemic was as normal to me as, I think it affected kids who had all that stuff and went to soccer practice and went to this more than it affected a kid like me. So I believe that some of my teachers don't have the same experience. Most of my teachers don't have that experience growing up. And I believe they have an unconscious feeling that they have to somehow help kids like me in a different way than they help the gifted kids, or a different way than they even help the average kid. And I want to change that. If I'm wrong about that, let me know. But, but what, here's my question. What is the one thing that I can do when I go back? Because this is a big, this is, a, this is an institutional and paradigm shift if I'm going to get it done. This is a big topic, equity. What is the one thing that you would say I could start with, with, with teachers who believe, they don't even realize they believe that, but do, that we gotta put these kids in, in, in and they, this kid's gotta stay in for recess because he's gotta get this done because if he doesn't, he's not gonna read by third grade. When I believe he, he needs recess. So maybe it's the pillars, maybe it's something you said this morning, but can you couch it in one thing I can start tomorrow? I can couch it in two things. Sorry, can you name that too? 
So I did two videos on this one. One is called Don't Project Brokenness on Our Children. And the other one is called uh, The Three Things All Great Teachers Do. So let's take the first one. What they're doing with love in their hearts is they're projecting brokenness. And they're doing the math. Like, we all do math. Like, you don't judge and profile. We all profile and we all judge. That's how we decide whether or not to go out. That's how I decided to walk back to that lobby last night when I saw that wildlife. I looked out, I was like, it's pitch black. It doesn't feel dangerous, but I don't know if his cousin's around that corner. I profiled, I profiled that wolf thing I saw last night. Totally. And he could be a nice wolf or whatever it was. You know what I mean? Like foxes smile in cartoons though. Here's my point. So that's what they're doing with love in their hearts. They're projecting. And my message in that video is don't project. You want how you respond to be based on evidence. All last year, everything was, we're gonna start the year with three weeks of SEL. Well, it was really SE, because nobody, they just chopped the L off. You follow Doug Reeves, he wrote a great blog. He's one of my colleagues as well. Don't take the L out of SEL. So the, the first thing to do is we make everything about learning. Learning is the through line of our work. Therefore, everything we respond to is based on whether it's impeding learning or advancing it. If it's advancing learning, we want to do more of it. But if we find something that's impeding learning, we want to respond to it. But everything we do, if we decide, we're not going to pull up a seat till you just for this, because you, right? We're going to do it because he's having some learning challenges. And if we do some digging, it might be related to the fact that he goes home, you know, in, they're right in the middle of like a, a drug swirl right now, and it, like how's he supposed to focus on math? But that's evidence which leads me to the second video, the three things all great teachers do. The greatest teachers you ever knew, hired, the greatest teachers you ever worked with, and the greatest teachers you ever had do three things. They assume nothing. So that's the first thing, assume nothing. Second thing is they respond to, they, they prepare for everything, and the third thing is they respond based on evidence. Respond based on evidence, not on hunches, not on feelings, right? I've had kids, I've had kids like you who do come to school and then they, they, they live out that horror story that, you know, and I've had others who come and it is their one sanctuary and they're blowing everything out of the water for some unknown reason, almost excelling in spite of us because it's the one stable place. But I know those two things based on what's happening with the learning. See, learning's our fundamental purpose. I take my cars to Litz Automotive in Sharpsburg, Georgia. If they start doing equity work, all right, Mike better be able to connect it to how that's gonna help them retain more customers, make cars more drivable faster, build relationships, but it's all in the service of more people bringing their cars to their shop. That's their fundamental purpose. They're not gonna study critical race theory unless it shows it's gonna help us fix cars faster, maintain relationships better. And like she talked about, tomorrow, actionable. So we gotta make everything based on learning, assume nothing. That's, that's what, assume nothing and make everything based on learning. And I'm not saying, we all do math. We all do the math. But we projected trauma on the kids before they were back. And I said, listen, there's a chance that some kids are gonna be traumatized, but can we wait for evidence of it? I'll tell you this quick story and I'm done. Because I'm gonna show you that I'm vulnerable as well. Middle of the pandemic, not even the middle, it was still March. My calendar's melting away, like, because 
Because I eat what I kill. I don't have a check coming every two weeks and stuff. I had a visionary principal out of Minnesota, Jessica Cabine. You should follow her too. She called me and said, Ken, I don't know what's going on. I don't know what the months will bring, but I want my teams ready to hit the ground running in terms of PLC work. So I want you to work with them for six weeks. Each team, five teams an hour over six weeks. And I was like, really? Really? Because I had trouble figuring out what my voice was going to be. Is my, is my messaging still relevant? I mean, it was just that chaotic time. But I also needed to work. And I was like, yeah, okay, I'll do it. First session, sixth grade math, our session. I assumed those teachers were broken because of this whole thing. And unconsciously, it wasn't part of my plan. It wasn't on the agenda. I had my PLC slides ready, but I slid right into, you okay, so tell me what's going on, and, uh, and, um, and uh, feelings, and uh, bip, bip, bip. It was all good stuff, but it had no context. It was the math I did in my head. My most embarrassing moment of the last two years came at the 50 minute mark, when one of the teachers said, so we're gonna, we're gonna get to the PLC. She was sweet about it too. We're gonna get to the PLC stuff. And I sat there feeling like a damn fool because I, I projected, I figured since teachers are going through this thing, they must be broken. There's no way they're gonna wanna talk about structure, but for those teachers, that's all they wanted to talk about. The, the antidote to chaos is control. They needed something, needed an anchor, but I didn't, I didn't even explore that. I didn't start the PLC learning and then see that there was a roadblock or that somebody's glazed over or somebody seems distracted, I assumed. And then I projected and we lost a session. Now I was great after that and there happened to be a session in the middle of those six weeks where there was a teammate who was really struggling with not seeing her kids and she broke down on the call and we had to put virtual arms around her, but that's based on evidence. So it's a discipline brother, but Keep everything about learning. That's our fundamental purpose. Everything we do. Everything we do is to advance learning. Every relation, we don't build relationships in isolation. That's misplaced sympathy. That's death by sweet and low. That's savior work. When I built relationships, it was so that I could pull your behind where you needed to go. Because I was physical. I don't pull them by the behind, but I mean, I grab kids and it's probably why I'm not a principal anymore too. I'd be in a newspaper, I'd be grabbing kids and stuff all the time. But you better, but you better have a connection with that kid, right? And then you can coach them and coach them hard and become warm demanders. That's what I want to see, warm demanders. Don't, I don't need you to learn rap music. If you know it, if you're a hip hop fan, that's fine, that's great. One thing that brings us together. But I really need you to treat them like they're gifted. Treat them like they're gifted. Starts with treating your teachers like they're gifted. Treat them like they're gifted. All right, we're gonna switch gears. This is a question that popped up. Can you discuss the role of the arts, the role the arts play in supporting a diverse population of scholars? By providing all scholars access to one-to-one -one devices, we increase the amount of screen time they now have access to. It seems like we have created a different gap by providing these rather than working to close the achievement gap. I think one of, the, one of the words in there I'd like to actually challenge instead of saying achievement gap and, and point it as the opportunity gap. And there's some, there's some intentionality between changing the language because achievement puts it on the students and, and much like you said, Ken, the opportunity gap puts it on what opportunities have we provided students. Um, and I think this goes to what you were just asking the question around what can, what's one thing I could take back to my staff. 
it's having multiple entry points. The problem is in all of these things and what you were talking about with initiative fatigue is that we do one size fits all. So we're gonna go to one one Chromebooks and all of our PD is gonna be around Pear Deck and how we use it and Kahoot. And while those are wonderful, I love them. I adore Pear Deck. Um, it isn't a one size fits all. Okay, now, no, the kids too, too much screen time. So now we're gonna go to all recess and everybody, we're gonna close screens. And then those kids who were doing exceptionally being able to have that chat because they didn't like to talk out loud. Clearly I was never one of those kids, but um, the, the we need to have multiple entry points, and that's the piece that we need to really focus on in terms of that opportunity gap. We need to look, and our teachers need to know our students. And so when we think about the one actionable thing we can do when we get back, is build those relationships, not to be pobrecito syndrome, not to be saviors, but to know our kids in order to provide multiple entry points into that learning. So we go back to that, that plastic water bottle. Are you a kid who needs to sing about water bottles in order to get it done? Are you a kid who needs to research how water bottles are done? Are you a student who needs somebody to give you the components of the water bottle? Do you have those multiple entry points to get to that goal that you as, your te you as teachers have identified? That's the L part of SEL, those relationships are connected. And I would say here, Arts are important, music is important, it's multiple entry points and giving your teachers permission to have multiple entry points. And that's hard for us because we like lesson plans that we can like walk in and go, oh, did you all follow the format that we agreed on in, in, in our PD that we're gonna all write our lesson plans this way or we're all gonna do lessons in, with the timers and the timestamps the same way. We need to give our teachers permissions to have multiple entry points to meet the needs of the human beings in front of them. I would just reiterate, I agree with the arts, the extracurriculars as a middle school, do it all, right? That's what we tell our kids, get engaged, find out what you like, try it. You don't even know if you like it. Um, so we need to get back to offering as much programming as we can, uh, get kids to think about career futures and things like that and pathways, um, allow kids to have lots of choice and exposure to a lot of things. Uh, I would argue that the one, de one device would help them learn any of those things. Helps me fix my washer this weekend, <laughs> right? So there is an equity gap if you don't have a Chromebook to look up how you fix your, fix your washer, because now you don't have a washer. So I would just say if it's Googleable, it's, you can learn. It's a learning tool. Um, and so I don't think it hurts to have kids, but um, always on a screen, no. We need to get back to some great teaching, rock star teaching. I, I think um, at an elementary level, I, I like what you said about the middle school is, is let's expose our kids to every opportunity that they have. We, we can't control what opportunities they have access to outside of school, we can inside of school. And if you never expose a kid to music or art or physical education, they might not be playing soccer um, you know, after school with, without what we provide for them. Uh, I believe Brett uh, Miles said it this morning, work hard, play hard, right? I mean, this conference among most of us, uh, I think we exemplify that pretty well, frankly. Um, so good work on, on the work hard, play hard. But I think arts is that for, for our kids. And if we can model for our students that work hard, play hard mindset, I, I, I think it creates an environment that school is worth coming to, and that's half the battle. If a majority of your kids want to be there every day, whether that's because they're loved, cared for, or because they have a chance to learn music today, that's half the battle. So everything in moderation, um, keeping that learning as the focus, but not at the sole exclusion of it. 
Because, yeah, I need to know the three-by-three three tables, but if that's all I do eight hours every day, I'm not going to want to come tomorrow as much as I like this guy. So we, we got to keep that in moderation, too. But, you know, so just, but, but keep in mind, learning is not all, you know, learning is learning. I mean, it's, can we learn? You're learning in ways on, what's today, Wednesday? I, I'm calling it Monday. Wednesday. I think it's Wednesday. Yeah. You're learning in ways on Wednesday that are going to make you want to come back tomorrow. I know that because I want to come back tomorrow. Right, so it's not, is it rigorous or fun? It can be rigorous and fun, right? And we can learn through experiences. When I, when I do PD with schools, you know, I, I, don't, I don't do a bunch of, line, I don't do linear things. I, I put you in situations where you feel what I want you to learn. And then you tell me what you learn, and I'll tell you you're right. So it's, um, so it, it's, it's, it's all learning. It's, it's all learning. It's, you know, I, just in case I don't get to say this before we're, we're done, like don't base, expectations on your students. Don't base, I don't, care what, I don't care what the profile is, but especially if you're teaching students of impact, that, that come from some impact, don't base your expectations on students. You base expectations on the expertise in the room. That's another thing the best teachers, you, every one of you, every one of you, raise your hand if you have this teacher, the teacher you know, now you could have a kid in first, second grade, and be on wanted posters. You know what I mean? Like that kid be on wanted posters. But you know, if that kid gets that teacher, that kid's gonna have a successful year. Raise your hand if you know that teacher. Absolutely. You know that a year before the kid gets there. You know that before she or he meets the kid. That's a thermostat teacher. Sets the I have a video on that too, thermostats and thermometers. Sets the temperature for the room, sets the temperature. When I hear things like, you know, the profile of our students affects what my expectations are, that's a thermostat, that's a thermometer mindset. I don't care how passionate you are. Thermometers take the temperature. I'm a thermostat. You know, whether I come to a conference like this where everybody's warm, they wanna be here, or I go to places where the superintendent's like, oh, before you go out there, Ken, I just want you to know, their hearts are in the right place. You know, one of those deals. I'm gonna to try to burn the building down. It just, because that, that's how I was as a teacher. Like I didn't want, I, so don't, don't base your, don't calibrate your expectations based on your kids. I don't care how well-intentioned it sounds, I mean, but fancy words you put behind it. I see right through that, so I'm telling you, it's not a good, it's not a good route. Go to your staff, talk, speak it into them, and then I put a video out yesterday, hunt, gather, protect, and defend, and go hunt and gather what they need to make that magic. It's always about this, it's always about the adults. Every breakthrough we make is not because your neighborhood got better or the median income increased. It's because of something that happened with your staff. So we wanted to be a world-class school in the bowels of the hood, and we were, the, we were the gum on the bottom of the district shoe. And they kept asking, but look at these kids and where they're from, and look at these kids. And where I said, I keep looking at you. We got, the, we got talent in the room, man. Just tell me what you need. I'll go get it. You see what I'm saying? But don't base it on your kids. Don't calibrate. That teacher you know, it may not mean a great year for her sometimes, right? Like she might be carrying a flask in one of her pockets. Like don't question what's in it. Vodka doesn't smell. What I'm telling you is, because I've had those years. I've had those years, you know, a little crystal. Like I never made my child crystal. She drove me to want to drink on campus. But I just, I wasn't a great teacher at 
everything or anything, but I, I have what I call indomitable mindset. I didn't wonder if I could make a difference. Every day I thought I was a difference. So much so that I didn't want cum folders affecting my calibration. You know, I didn't. And I'm not recommending this, but to a fault, because you know what happens, you get the new class roster and your teammates from last year come running down the hall. Oh my God, you got Roger and Deshaun? And they're ready to tell you about their whole like dossier. And I'm like, eh, bah, bah. I don't want to know. What I need to know about a kid will find me. That's how I feel about the news. I haven't watched the news in 35 years. What I need to know in the world will find me. And so I didn't read folders. I skimmed folders for two things, and I'll shut up. Allergies and custody. That's all I look for in a folder. Allergies and custody. If you're allergic to peanuts, we, not, we can't have snicker bars on Friday fun time. And if Uncle John John is not supposed to pick you up, I need to know that Uncle John is not supposed to pick you up. Otherwise, tabula rasa, baby. Tabula rasa. I didn't want any list of labels or all the things wrong with a kid affecting my expectations, man. And I know I had a kid on a spectrum in my second year. And his mom was so afraid of him being, you know, having a special education label because of the over, you know, disproportionate number of young black boys. And it was never a thought for me. I was just like, Paul's just different. He just makes sounds, he's a great artist. And, and we, we formed a community and those kids would go out there. They started teasing him in the beginning, man. By October, they were like a little gang. Like somebody mess with Paul from another grade and see what happens. <laughs> and Paul was big enough himself. So I'm telling you, I'm telling you, it's the adults. You gotta ask yourself, based on where our kids are and based on where they need to go, do we have the talent in the room? Do we have the expertise in the room? Can we leverage the expertise in this room? That's a thermostat. Thermometers, thermometers talk about demographics. Our demographic is changing, our population. Blah, 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 blah. You get it? What he was talking about earlier with the Native American, that's the thermostat. All he's thinking about is, how do we make them ours so they're us? And the differences can come later. But they're us. We do it in sports. I'm a Giants fan. They stink. When I go to Giants games, all shapes and sizes. I own those cars. I go to a, a local car show. We're all the same people. Men and women who love cars. Red hat, blue hat, doesn't even matter. In the throes of when this country was losing its doggone mind during the election, I had the best conversations with all sorts of people. All sorts of people. There's a car, that, that's what made us the same. The car, the nostalgia, what's your story, what's my story. Look for what brings us together first, and everything, your achievement is based on the adults in the building and how you leverage your talent. If you could only be a little more passionate, we'd appreciate that. <laughs> like a little spirit in the room. Um, one thing I've learned from coming to this conference for year after year is people listen and take notes and the brains are going and we go from here to here. How do we rein it back down to here? So what advice would you give to the administrators in the room, that one thing to take back to get started? So that's for you, Ken, and for the panelists to think, what's that one thing you're gonna take back to your school tomorrow, next week? I think we're all back on the job now, so what's that one thing you're gonna take back? Uh, those five shifts, and then the one thing is, uh, assuming that you, know every, that you got everything down, is you gotta focus on essentials. And the essentials, Work around essentials is 50% mindset and 50% execution. And the execution part, most schools got down. I go home and say, hey, we're doing well. As evidenced by, we got our essentials, yep. But they're missing the mindset part. The one thing is you go back and you focus on essentials because you can talk, you can read all the books you want. 
when you identify essentials and then employ the mindset, which is we've identified random number six learning outcomes. Every student's got a master in fifth grade math in the first marking period. And then you look at each other and say, we are not going to allow for any excuses. We're not giving up on kids. We're going to do this and have a life, but we're going to put our heads down and work to grow every single kid. The one you're thinking about right now, him too. Every single kid. Cause he's like, he don't know Bessie though. I know Bessie. Doesn't matter the label. If they're expected to be a financially independent, productive member of our society, they get grown to that bar. Some kids are going to go through that bar. That's the work. Because that's going to reveal the kind of bias that's going to help you move the needle. That might reveal some prejudices that will eventually help you move the needle. That's context. And that's the work. Because if you don't do that, you're going to be doing what you're doing now. One, you got pockets of excellence. you got some teams that are getting after it, some teams that aren't. you got some people who establish that since every kid's supposed to learn this, this represents high levels of learning. You can go higher, but this represents high levels of learning. And you got a lot of classrooms where folks are deciding. What's high levels for her is not high levels for her. See, without the essentials, we're left to judge. And right now, I call it the bar. We got a bar for these kids and a bar for those kids. A bar for kids on this side of town and a bar for kids on that side of town. A bar for poor white kids, poor black kids, poor brown kids. A bar for kids who don't speak the King's English. A bar for kids with IEPs and kids we call unmotivated, but there's just one bar. When you go by your caramel macchiato and it tastes like Windex, and the kid says, oh, I was in remedial reading in third grade. He said, oh, my bad, I'll just drink this up. <laughs> oh, ma'am, you shorted me $20 up the register. Uh, they said I was special ed in math. Oh, my bad, keep the 20, never mind. <laughs> Life does not level down. We gotta stop leveling down. Get rid of those below grade level groups because what, I don't know what the study's called, but when you create a new bucket, there's something about human nature, we will fill the void. So you can sit there and think, you can justify why you got five low groups in third grade reading, but I'm telling you, it's because you got five low groups. You get rid of the low group buckets, your, the instruction will improve and kids will rise to the occasion. You keep creating buckets, we'll be back here next year and you'll show me your chart with your 10 uh, algebras before algebra. It's mindset work. Identify essentials and then become consumed with every kid mastering them. That was the one thing, that took 10 minutes. Man, I keep saying I'm done. I think my biggest takeaway is treat everyone, staff and students, like they're gifted. Hold a high bar, hold to it. Um, be the thermometer. I'm sorry, the thermostat, not the thermometer. I, I agree with you. It's the mindset work. Um, if you, you know, we, we, we start with the idea that every kid has a superpower. Um, and I was a former EBD teacher, so my whole room was the kids, the teachers were like, oh. Um, and every one of my students, I started out with the idea that you are a superhero, you have gifts, you have powers, you are who you are, and we will make it a place that you feel like you are a gift to be there. And that's the mindset work, that's my takeaway. And my demand of, of the folks that work in my building are, do you believe every child is a gift to be here? And do you know every child? Can you tell me something about every kid, all 925 of them? And if you can't, what are we doing that you can't? And that's the barrier that we will break down this year. Because we can do grade level instruction if we know our kids. And every one of them can master it. Miss, do you want to go? Sure. No, I think uh, just 
one of one of my takeaways is is just the focus on priority standards, focus on you know the the, the curricular expectations. Um, we're adopting a new language arts curriculum, and even you know before we started that, I had some anxiety about are we going to get lost in the program or the product versus the standard. So just I'm there's a video on that one, um, but just but there you go, there you go, and so just just a reaffirmation that that high expectations is equity work. Focus on what outcomes are is equity work, and and just working you know backwards through that. Right. You got to define them. I know that's what he's talking about, but high equity, you know, high levels of learning and high standards alone, that's a euphemism. And if you don't define it, then she's gonna have a different definition than her, than me, than him, and then we back to where we started. But feeling good about ourselves, no. 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 You gotta define it. <clears throat> all right. Um, we are about out of time this morning. But first of all, I want to thank um, the panel today, Ken, Mitch Forsberg, Moira Coogan, and Chris Singer for joining us for our live taping of our Case in Point podcast from the 52nd Annual Case Convention. But to all the panelists, thank you very much. And to Ken, to close out like you closed out your keynote, I think you've empowered all of us to keep moving up.